All right, have a seat. Before we dig in this morning, let's, uh, let's just ask God to bless this time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an amazing thing to get to be your people, um, hearing your love and your encouragement and your truth, uh, speaking about it as if it matters, sharing it and, and spreading it around as if it can change lives, that the gospel, this gospel that you have given us, the good news that we have to share, can actually make a difference, a difference in people's lives for the better to lift them up and to encourage them as it has lifted and encouraged us. So we boldly, we boldly proclaim and we yearn to hear this beautiful thing that you've given us so that we can adore you and honor you and follow you and be your people as you are our God for your glory, for the glory of the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning to you all. For those that are worshiping with us online, for those of you who are here in the house today, it is good, good that we can worship together this morning. And uh, Today, we are going to continue along in uh, our study of the book of Judges. Pastor Kurt began this, uh, introduced us to the book of Judges last week, and in his introduction, challenged us to spend some time examining ourselves, which is an important thing that happens when you open God's word and he speaks. We are challenged in how we see things playing out. We see these characters interacting with each other. We're, we learn things about how we're supposed to be. Uh, who are we supposed to be? When life gets like, fill in the blank, this, this, however this is, who are we supposed to be? That's one of the ways the Bible helps us. It grows us up. Um, there are other lessons that the Bible teaches. As I was digging into our passage for today, uh, I, was, I felt like, it was a, another lesson, another truth that God was wanting to reveal for today. And so uh, this morning, uh, as we dig into this passage, we're going to be learning about the second of the 12 judges that God sent for his people to uh, set them free from oppression, to lead them out of bondage, and lead them in the ways of the Lord. Um, after we're going to dig in, I'm going to share a couple of details, some like weird little things that are a part of this passage. Uh, but then we're also going to be looking for some, a, a greater lesson that God wants to speak to us. And so if you'll open your Bibles or the words are on the screen, you can, uh, you can just sit back and let God's word wash over you. Hear this, God's word for us today out of Judges chapter three. We'll start at verse 12. Again, now, that word is loaded with all kinds of meaning. Again, yes, again. This is not the first time that this has happened. It has happened once before. There, uh, Ehud is uh, the second of the 12 judges. Othniel was the first. So it is not a new thing that people have forgotten who God is, sinned, cried out, and then were saved. The cycle of apostasy is what we're talking about, that process. It had happened before. It was happening again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, 
the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. Most believe that that was the city of Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. Now, we're going to pause for a second. Let's unpack who this guy was. First of all, we know that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that makes, uh, actually means something in this passage because we are introduced to him being left-handed, but he is from the tribe of Benjamin. Did you know that the word Benjamin literally means son of my right hand? Now, it also matters because this word left-handed comes up only three times in our Bibles, and all three times it is brought up in relation, in relation to the Benjamites. They seem to have this reputation for, for being able to use their left hand to do things. And all of the accounts happen in times of war or battle or, or adversity. Oh, there's one time where a bunch of them are recognized for being able to use a sling with their left hand and hit things with pinpoint accuracy. Another time, there was a group of left-handed Benjamites that rose up and helped David in that tough spot. And now here, here in Judges, we find Ehud, who is told to us as a left-handed man. Now, that word left-handed is an interesting word. Uh, they're not exactly sure how it's supposed to be translated. But if we go back a long time ago to the first time, the very first time that the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, the very first time it was translated into a different language than Hebrew, it was translated into Greek. We call that translation the Septuagint. This happened between 300 and 150 years before Jesus was born. And when the Septuagint translates this word, they say it this way. God gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a man with two right hands. Oh, you might have been ambidextrous. So we do a little study and we look it up. And what we find out is that the Benjamites may have had a reputation for training their warriors to be ambidextrous. Back then, when you went into battle, everybody battled with their right hand. You know, you got your sword over here, you got your shield like this, and you're fighting and going crazy. Imagine the advantage if you're busy doing your thing and suddenly you can go, ha, ha, ha. Like you will mess with people. Like they won't be able to do anything about it. It's kind of like if you can be a, a switch hitter, right? They got a right-handed pitcher out there. You walk up, you're like, no, I don't think so. You just switch over. It gives you an advantage. The Benjamites, historically, it seems like they may have been trained to be ambidextrous. And so here, here is a hood, a man with two right hands walking into this moment. We continue. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit. A cubit is about 18 inches long. A double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Now, this, this matters because that means it was hidden. Nobody ever imagined that anybody would be armed on their right side. Everybody was armed on their left side. It made reaching over and pulling out the sword much easier because everybody fought with their right hands. So, that he strapped it to his right thigh meant that he was armed, he was carrying concealed, without a permit. 
He went and he presented the tribute they sent him with to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Another pause. We wouldn't know this because we are not Hebrew. We are not Israelite. We don't read Hebrew. But did you know? It's a nice statement, right? A question? No, of course. The word Eglon, the name Eglon, literally means rotund or round bull or calf. This is a great moment. The story telling, the the Hebrew people loved a good story, the poetry of it, double meanings of things. And when they were telling this story to their kids, when people were reading this story, they had, this is foreshadowing. The moment Eglin's name is mentioned, suddenly the people are like, oh, I see where you're going with this. He is a calf fatted for the slaughter. All right, God's gonna do something here. Verse 18, now after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. That Hebrew word message can also mean thing. Your majesty, I have something secret for you. So the king, he's pretty excited about this secret thing he's going to get, this message. He says to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. And Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace. And he said, I have a message from God for you. I have something from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ahud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. And even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Gross. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. And then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Now, after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. And they said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. Um, They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. And there they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. Now see, while they had been waiting, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down from the hills with him, leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. And so they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. Years after 18 years under the rule of Eglon, the 80 years of peace ushered in by God through Ehud was the longest period of peace and prosperity during the time of the judges. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Lots of weird, crazy stuff going on there. Some details maybe we didn't really want to know, but it's in the Bible. <laughs> so that's one of, my, like, one of my favorite things as a preacher. It's like sometimes you just get to read stuff from the Bible that's a little bit controversial and you feel like, hey folks, 
God says it's important, so we're going to talk about it. But what does this have to do with us now, right? So there's a great story, lots of little details. So what? What does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with our lives, with the things that we experience? What are we supposed to learn from these characters, this moment, these folks happening, what's going on with them in the story? I mean, it's God's word. It does matter. I don't think that God is trying to teach us how to avoid becoming a corpulent king. I don't think that he is trying to teach us the necessity of left-handers. My mom might disagree with that. Hi, mom. I know you're a lefty, but I don't think that's the lesson here. I don't think that God is trying to tell us it's important for us to deceive so that we can get God's will to be done. And I don't think, I really don't think that God wants us to kill our enemies. So what does this have to do with us? What's the lesson? Well, anytime you're reading through God's word, anytime you're digging into these kind of stories, it's tempting to, to, to as, you're, as you're reading through, to, to, to see the people involved and to try and identify, right? We just have, who is this and, and who does this represent and how do I fit into this story? And does this have anything to do with me? We, we, we kind of get the, the surface level read of it and, 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 and we wanna learn a lesson about how we can apply what's happening to ourselves. It's tempting to do that. When we do that, we sometimes forget that there is another person in every single story in our Bible. In fact, the whole Bible is about this person. And oftentimes we forget that he is the most important story. His is the most important story being played out in this. God himself is in this story. He is trying to tell us something about who he is. Every single story in this book is about God, ultimately. All of these are pictures painted in some way or another of a faithful and loving father so that we can know who it is that loves us, who it is that has made us, who it is that regards us and is seeking us and pursuing us. The Bible is meant to paint a picture of him in any and every story. So what's the picture being painted of him in this story? Well, as I was reading it, the thing that jumped out to me was very simply this. Here is a picture painted of a God who is never far away, regardless of how far we try and run away from him. Those people were running from him. They were running to anything and everything they wanted. And God, as much as they were running, God was right there with them every point of the way. And then when they suddenly realized, there's chaos all around me, I need the Lord. They turned, boom, and he was right there. He was never far from them. There's a picture painted here of the kind of God who can and will make all kinds of things happen so that he can be with the people he loves again and again and again. He will provide. Sometimes unorthodox solutions to problems he never caused, but problems he will face with us so that his beloved ones can always come back home, so that we have a home, so that we are restored in our relationship with him, with the one who pursues us wherever we wander. Not being alone, 
matters. Looking for the God part, the, the God truth in any story that we're encountering, even, even the stories that we are living out. It's not just the stories in the Bible that are stories that tell us who God is. It's the stories of our lives. Why do you think that when we were talking, we've been talking about this whole year about this 500 neighbors thing, we're not asking for the stories of you blessing your neighbors so that you can brag about yourselves. Your stories are God's story. And we need to tell them. We need to share them. It doesn't brag on us. It brags on him who made us. I'm going to tell you a story so that you can see God in action. It's going to seem like a story about one particular person, but the only reason she's letting me tell it is because it's actually God's story. A couple of weeks ago, I made a mess. It was a big mess. I have a shed on the west side of my property and uh, <clears throat> the paint on the door of my shed was peeling terribly. I don't think it got primed the last time it got painted. Uh, and I inherited that when we bought the house five years ago. And after just two years, it just started peeling like crazy. So I bought some primer, I bought some paint. And one Saturday I decided today's the day. And so I put it up on sawhorses and I, I stripped that thing down to the metal and it was nice and clean. I you know, got it all spick and span. It's ready to go. Oh, I left the primer and the paint in the basement in the house. Better go get that. So I go traipsing in, go down to the basement, grab the paint and the primer, two brand new cans, small cans. They're not big cans, just it's enough to paint a door. And so I'm walking out, kind of going up the stairs, and I'm like, oh, I got to open that door to get out of the house. And so I kind of put both of them right here, and I'm reaching for the door, and guess what? <laughs> the can of primer goes flying and it bounces on one of the steps and it dents and the lid goes flying and white primer goes all over the stairs, the wall and the basement carpet. I had created chaos in my wife's home. It is her home. We both know it's her house. It's my shed. It's her house. And I, in this moment, am feeling stupid for letting something like that happen. And I'm also concerned now how Laura's going to feel now that I have painted a bunch of her stairs and wall different colors. And she hears the ruckus, and she comes running. Did you fall down the stairs? And I'm like, no. I wish I would have. She sees the mess, immediately runs off, gets some supplies to clean it up, some water, and we proceed in this moment to start scrubbing and cleaning and keeping things wet so it doesn't dry and, and trying to get through it. The, the paint is just soaking through the carpet into the pad. I mean, there's no getting it all out. We know this and we're doing this. Now, as we're cleaning, as we're going at this, she knows she's been a wife for a long time. She knows how fragile the male ego can be in moments like these. And she's paying attention to me. She's busy helping clean. She's watching me. How serious is he going to take this? Is he going to beat himself up? Is he going to be mean to himself on this? Do I have to like get on him about knock that crap off? Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I apologize. Oh my goodness. <clears throat> I apologize. Am I going to have to correct my husband because of how he's treating himself? 
And I saw her watching me and I knew what was going through her head. And so my ears are red, I can just feel it. <clears throat> and I decided in that moment that I would, I would handle it. And I decided to laugh. We just started laughing together. She's relieved, we're laughing together. And we, we clean it up, and as we're cleaning it up, we, we get the carpet all kind of as much as we could, but there's gonna be pain in there no matter what. We know there's gonna be a crusty spot on this carpet. And we're, we're getting done, and, and we stand back, and is it good enough? And she looks at me and she goes, you know, if we ever decide to move and sell this house, it's gonna be this that's gonna be hardest for me. I'm gonna miss this the most. I'm gonna grieve this. I'm like, this? She's like, yeah. Well, this is our life together. This is the messiness that we walk through together, the chaos that comes, and we do it together, and, and nothing's perfect, and it's good, and it's, it's life. And that moment, it was, I was like reminded, that's the moment that I was thinking of as I was reading the story of Ehud. That's the moment that suddenly this like deeper truth just became apparent to me. Some of the hardest stuff that we ever have to go through in life are the moments when chaos comes and we're all alone. We feel like we're all alone. Like here's this thing that's coming and we have to deal with it. And who is going to be there to help us? And, it, and sometimes it's not big things. Some, sometimes it's as simple as, as, as like the, the snow is piled up in the driveway and it's Michigan. I mean, what do you expect? So you go out and you start scooping it, but you're all by yourself. I'm out there scooping the snow by myself. And I feel alone sometimes because there's a lot or it's really heavy or it's been a really long day or a really long week. And I'm out there and I'm doing that and suddenly one of my teenage boys walks outside, not to ask me for anything, but he grabs a shovel and he just starts scooping. I didn't even have to ask him. And I didn't feel alone anymore. And that matters. When we're not alone, it matters. And it's, sometimes it's big things. I remember a little over a year ago, I was at a conference in Orlando in January and I'm standing outside of the, the meeting room. I'm on this like terrace area. I'm standing there out there in the sunshine. It's January, it's beautiful. And I'm on the phone and it's that Wednesday morning. I'm talking to my cousin who also works for hospice and she's telling me that my dad just died. And I'm standing there all alone. I take a deep breath and you wonder what's next. You hang up the phone. I hung up the phone and I put it in my pocket and I turn and there standing there were Pastor Andrew and Pastor Nate from our church here. And I knew I wasn't alone. There's moments that God reminds us that we can handle it because we're not alone. Because people stand with us in the midst of whatever chaos comes. I think for me, that's what this story about Echud is really about. I think it's God saying to his people, I know you're facing chaos, 
And I know you're the one who caused it, but I'm here with you. And I'm never going to leave you. Not ever. And that's so much more encouraging when reading a story like that than hearing that some ambidextrous guy could trick a king and then lead some people to victory. It's so much more encouraging to know that God is saying in this moment through these people, through the story, you are not alone. I will not abandon you. This is the Lord telling us who he is. He's telling his story. He's revealing himself, his love, his provision, just how far he's willing to go to be with us in every moment. This is a bit of a foreshadowing, if you'd allow it to be, of Jesus. Just how far is God willing to go? Well, guess what? He's going to put on flesh. He's going to be a king who chooses to come and live among his people and then let them kill him so that they might live. He will sacrifice. That's the story of Jesus. It's the story of pursuit and pulling us in despite the chaos because that's who God is. That's who he is. It's always, always been. It started at the very beginning. That's who God is. In the beginning, there was the surface of the deep. This is the Bible's way of saying there was chaos. Darkness, chaos, the surface of the deep, um, the, the, the lake. Um, uh, what's the name of the lake? Sea of Galilee. This is deep sea. These are all representative things of, of depths and chaos and death and scary stuff. And God, from the very beginning, sends the spirit over the surface of the deep. And in the midst of the darkness, he says, let there be light. He brings order out of chaos. He did it again with his people when they were wandering the wilderness. Again, the wilderness is the same kind of notion in the Bible. It is darkness. It is scary. It is apartness. And he says, I will be with you in the wilderness. I will make sure you have what you need. I will give you manna. I will give you water. I will give you quail. I will protect you from your enemies. In the middle of all of this chaos, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Take heart. I have overcome the world. He says, he brings order out of chaos. And guess what else he does from that very first moment? And he continues to do even today. He makes us in his image. It's not just God and his story that he is trying to outline for us here. This is who I am and this is what I am doing. But he's also encouraging us and reminding us who we are in him so that we will think the same things about ourselves. We will follow in his footsteps. We will believe that he has made us to do what he has done. Go and do likewise. I think one of the greatest things about being God's people in this world together is that we can stand arm in arm against chaos. When it comes up, we are with each other. When those around us stumble, we help them up. When there are people around us in this world who are thirsty, we give them something to drink. Or if they're hungry, we give them something to eat. And if they're grieving, we walk with them in it so they don't have to grieve alone. And sometimes when we throw paint around our houses willy-nilly, we join with each other and we get to scrubbing and we laugh. When other people experience complicated realities, um, 
There are a lot of complicated realities in our world, and there are a lot of people in the midst of them. And sometimes they choose those complicated realities on their own, and sometimes they don't choose those complicated realities for themselves. But just like Jesus did for every single one of us, uh, even if we're confused by that reality that person is choosing, or even if we're offended by whatever reality they choose, just like Jesus did for us, Christ's church reaches out and walks with in the midst of chaos. When the church is present in the world, the light of Christ shines and chaos must submit. And you, brothers and sisters, are the church. You are. This is a building. You are the church. You. You carry the image of God. You carry the light of Jesus Christ into the, peop- into the lives of people wherever you are. You do. And you have the ability to help them look into the face of chaos and say, you know what, chaos, you don't get to define this day. This day belongs to the Lord. That is our story because it is God's story. As he reveals who he is, we know who we are because we have been created in his image. We learn what is true of us for his glory and the glory of the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being God. Thank you for being Father. Thank you for being faithful. And thank you for helping us know you, for revealing yourself and giving us hope that chaos doesn't rule and reign, that you are bigger and more powerful and that you are with us in all of it. Give us patience, encouragement, and courage that we can walk with others through the chaos of their lives so they too, just like we, don't have to be alone. For your glory and the glory of the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.